It's a pleasure to see you all this morning, and if you don't mind, let's start with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather with your people on this Lord's Day, the day that you have made holy, the day in which you rested and ceased from all your labors of creation, which were good. Father, we thank you for this day that you've made it for us to set aside the the deeds of the week, our our ordinary tasks and responsibilities, and just have a full day to revel in who you are, to be nourished by your word, to be encouraged by the fellowship of the saints. And Father, even now, I pray that my words would be an encouragement to all who are here. I pray that you would uh, help me to be clear, for this is a difficult passage. But Father, we trust that it is for us and for us this morning and for our children forever. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. We have the privilege of reading this morning about three different judges this morning. Uh, But before we do that, we'll have just a little bit of review to bring us up to speed. Over the last two weeks, Mr. Fowler and Mr. Ellis have taught us lessons from Judges 1 and 2. And these chapters serve as a prologue. They give us the patterns for how we are to read the book of Judges. The book of Judges, you see, must tell us how we are to read Judges. And if we want to understand life on the ground, if we want to understand the life of an Israelite, well then we can look at the details specifically surrounding the Judges. We can look at how they live in times of peace for many, many years. They have rest from their oppressors. We can also look at how many times throughout their lives they would have been oppressed, cowering in the mountains, having to go down and take their farm tools to the enemy to be sharpened, just to make a living. But if we're going to read the book of Judges, then we have to look for the theology and the history. There's theology in its pages. Why was Israel time and time again oppressed? Why were they enslaved again for many years? Why were left-handed assassins picked as men to come and be judges? Why were men of great strength come and be judges of Israel? Well, these are questions of history. These are questions who find their answer in theology. So let's briefly recall to our mind this morning the introduction that Mr. Fowler and Mr. Ellis gave us. The book of Judges begins with the people who only partially have conquered the promised land. You remember the Lord had dealt kindly and was even slow to bring anger to the Canaanites. But their time was, their time was come. And after delaying for centuries, years, now the Israel was to be the divine administrator of the Lord's justice. And let's remember that these people are above all a wicked people, a wicked people who are pagans and even sacrificed their children in the fire. Let's also remember why God redeemed Israel, why he brought them out of Egypt. And he brought them out for worship, first and foremost. God, in his almighty power and wisdom with a strong arm, delivered the people so that they might be his children who worship him in spirit and in truth. They were to dwell with God in righteousness, in a holy land. And you see, Israel was supposed to be a type, a shadow, pointing us to heaven of where there is union and God dwells among his people without, uh, without blood or sacrifices. But of course, they were not holy. They were supposed to be a holy nation even as God was holy in a holy land. But they could not just go anywhere they wanted. Israel had to be in the land that God promised them to be. And the land of Canaan had to be purified. It had to be a holy land. 
because the Lord cannot abide evil, and He cannot let sin go unpunished. And so the land could not have any wickedness in it. And the Lord commands Israel to be His instruments in this task of purification. But in the introductions of Judges 1 and 2, we see that the Israelites are failing to do that. They're failing to be God's uh, administrators of justice. They're failing to purify the land so that God might dwell with them in righteousness. And they're in effect saying, God, we appreciate you bringing us out of Egypt. We appreciate all you've done for us. Uh, But we think that you should just be able to put up with these people. We think that you can worship us as we want. We think that you can just get over yourself because we don't really want to be bothered with going to war. We think that you are not holy. We think that you and your tabernacle and your Ark of the Presence can just be parked next to Dagon and these Baals and these Astros because we want to. And thus, the Lord tests Israel. The Lord continues to purify Israel by sending them afflictions and oppressors so that they might return to Him. And this is the pattern that we'll see over and over again throughout the book of Judges. The Lord sends nations to bite and tear the flesh of Israel so that they would cry out and return to the Lord. The Lord is above all a gracious and merciful God, even in the afflictions. And the Lord is delivering Israel from their immediate oppressors, but the Lord is also, when He sends judges, He's also purifying the land. He's also driving out the afflictors of Israel. And so the land is purified. Now, Dale Ralph Davis has wrote, written three sections on Judges chapter 3, because there are three judges. So we'll take our uh, sections this morning in three sections. But even as we see three different judges, we'll start to see the patterns. We'll see six things, uh, six patterns that we see in each judge. But we'll see a downward spiral, a downward trajectory. So while there might be rest for 40 years, or even 80 years in the beginning, we start to see that rest becoming less and less. All right? So if you have turned in your Bibles to Judges chapter 3, we'll read God's Word from chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 7, verse 7 through 11. This is God's Word to us this morning. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. Oh, excuse me. I'm in the wrong place. All right. Uh, This is Judges chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishatharim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishatharim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishatharim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishatharim. So... The land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Now, this ends the reading of God's word to us uh, for this section. Othniel forms for us a pattern, uh, a pattern of the paradigmatic judge. He is the guy who does it rightly. 
as we go on, we'll see judges of more questionable character. But let's look at, let's take an opportunity to look at some patterns, some key themes we'll look at uh, through the rest of the book of Judges. Some key principles. First, the first thing we see in all the judges is that Israel is unfaithful. And the verbs here are abandonment, adultery. The covenant-keeping God requires that when Israel enters the land, they remember the Lord their God who brought them out of Israel, that they keep and guard His law, that they write His laws on their doorposts, and that they walk in righteousness. But what does Israel do? Judges 2.12, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods who among, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they served them. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. This is spiritual and covenant abandonment. And the treasure of God's affections forget, and they abandon. They do not remember. Well, Judges 2.17, they do not listen. They do not listen and they do not obey. They will not hear and they will not soften their hearts. Well, in our passage this morning, Judges 3, verse 7, again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroths. The lovers of their soul, the lover of their soul, the Lord, was just pushed aside. Well, that's the first thing. Israel forgets. Israel does what's evil. The second thing is that the Lord becomes angry. Is this really any surprise to us? The Lord, who promised He would, promised He would become angry and jealous over His precious possession. The Lord becomes angry and He sends oppressors to afflict His people so that they might return to Him. Right? The Lord gives His people over to their sins and it leads to their ruin. He gives them what they want. Israel becomes oppressed. They're made slaves again. Just like in Egypt, they are brought low, and it is clear that it is the Lord who is doing this. The Lord is the one raising up, even strengthening these Mesopotamians, these Philistines, these Amorites, these Moabites, against His own people for His own purposes. The Lord becomes angry. That's number two. Number three is that the people cry out. The people cry out to the Lord. And there is something that we will notice throughout the book of Judges, is that the people cry out from affliction. They never really return. They never really repent. They're always saying, we are tired of being afflicted. They're never saying, we have sinned. We have sinned against the Lord and our guilt is ever before Him. They never say, uh, they never take responsibility for their rebellion. And they never say that we are deserving, richly deserving of all this that has come upon us. They never apologize. And throughout Judges, we just see the people groaning, not repenting. And so because of that, we have to say that the Lord is not being forced to bring about deliver, deliverance. No one's twisting His hand. He is doing this out of His rich mercy and because He is abounding in steadfast love. He saves His people anyway. All right, that's number three. Uh, the people cry out. Number four is that the Lord hears and the Lord answers. The Lord hears and answers by raising up a judge, raising up a single man to be a deliverer of the people by fighting against Israel's enemies and by rescuing them through deliverance of battle. The Lord raises up a man first from the tribe of Judah. More on that later. But another thing to notice about these judges is that, or they are men, or in our next case, a woman, who is filled with the Spirit. They're men, they're men um, 
who are filled with the Spirit of God to accomplish His works. All right, that's number, number four. Number five is that the people are liberated and that there's peace. The battle is fought. We can already see the connections with Christ entering into the house of the strong man and binding the strong man so that his house might be plundered. Then peace comes to the land, and people are free again to worship God. Yet another chance for the people of Israel to be righteous, another chance for them to return to the Lord, another chance for them to obey, to purify themselves, and to dwell with God in right worship. But as Judges continues, we'll see there will be less and less peace, and there will be fewer and fewer years of blessing. And the last thing, the sixth thing we will see is that at the end of every judge's story, the judge dies. The judge dies because he has done what God has appointed him to. But then there is no deliverer left in Israel. The main point of the lesson this morning is that history is theological. Above all, history is the acts of an almighty God who is involved, not removed, but involved in the details of history. Things do not just happen. We might be uncomfortable with saying that the Lord brings about calamity or natural disasters which kill millions of people or, or even hundreds, but He does. We might be uncomfortable with saying that the Lord commanded His people to invade a land and wipe out everyone, but He did because He is a holy God and not to be questioned. Now, it's true for us that we're not promised locusts, and frogs and, and, and oppressing people ravaging at our heels for particular sins. But we can't expect that the Lord is not pleased by sin and is not pleased by sins of a nation. And now let's turn and look at, take these six things and look at the particulars of Othniel, our first judge. In chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, let's look again. First thing, the Lord is unfaithful. I mean, excuse me, the, the, the Israelites are unfaithful, but the Lord, even though the Lord has been faithful to bring them into the land, they serve other gods. They abandon the Lord. They serve the Baals and the Asherahs. And the Lord gives them over. You see the Lord become angry at Israel's arrogance and their forgetfulness. The Lord's anger is a terrible thing. It shakes the ground and it makes the nations tremble. And the Lord literally sells his people like a pair of unwanted shoes. He sells them and gives them over into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the Lord serves a second pharaoh, almost. And they serve him for eight years. Now this guy's name literally means double evil, right? Now no mother is going to name their son double evil. So we suspect that this is a name that's actually uh, a play, a play on words. We, we suspect that it means it was originally double rivers, but this guy is so bad. His street cred on Israel is so low that he's given the pseudonym double evil. He's a totally wicked ruler. But the Lord's wrath is even hope for Israel. His love compels an invasion of Mesopotamian forces, and they conquer all of Israel. And all of this is because the Lord cannot have His people serving false gods because He is righteously jealous for His bride. Again, the people cry out under this oppression. The people are unfaithful, God is angry, and sends oppressors, and the people cry out. 
And people cry is not one of repentance, but a complaining. But the Lord still brings deliverance. Notice in notice in verse nine that the Lord raises up a deliverer. He raises up a deliverer from the tribe of Judah. He raises up a judge, and this man's name is Othniel. Now we've already been introduced to Othniel in Judges chapter one. He's a bad dude. He's a man's man. We uh, we are introduced to him when Caleb needs a city, an entire city taken out. Now Judah has already been tearing through the countryside in administering the justice of the Lord. They've sacked Jerusalem, who was which was then a pagan city. They set it on fire, and then they go down into the flatlands to uh, to take on some more Canaanites, and they're just ripping it up. And then the baddest of them all is called to take on a single city, Kiriath Sephir, in Judges chapter 1. And Othniel rises to the challenge. He's the one who goes up and takes it, an entire city. We're not given the details. We are told it just happened. This guy is effective. He's a warrior. And he claims Caleb's daughter as his wife. As it turns out, she is a shrewd and wise woman as she provides springs of water for her family. This is truly a blessed couple. But more importantly, this man is from the tribe of Judah. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's a Kinzanite, and he's related to Caleb. You remember Caleb was one of the 12 spies sent into Canaan to spy it out in Numbers 13. And his courage was such that he was one of only two that actually said, the Lord will give us this great land. And it's important for the book of Judges that Othniel is from Judah. Because who was chosen in chapter 1 of Judges to lead the military campaign after Joshua's dead? Who was chosen? It was Judah. Why did the Lord pick Judah to lead Israel? Out of 12 options, he picks just Judah. Well, in Genesis 49, Jacob blesses the children of Israel. He blesses his sons with particular and unique blessings. And these blessings characterize the history of Israel even these 700 years later. And just remember with me, uh, Genesis 49, uh, verses 8 through uh, verses, verse 11. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club, cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, he shall be the obedience of the peoples. Remember that in Judges 1, the children of Israel were lost without a leader, without Joshua. And Joshua was a faithful leader who led them in battle after Moses. And after his death, death, the people ask, who will go up first? Who will lead us in battle? And the Lord chooses Judah. And who better than the royal tribe, the tribe from whom the Messiah would come, the great deliverer of Israel? Truly, Judah is the royal tribe. And so our man, Othniel, the first judge, is from Judah. He fits the bill. But just notice briefly with me the connections between Othniel and David. Othniel wins his wife after defeating a city. David wins Saul's daughter 
after defeating many, many Philistines. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 17. Othniel is from the tribe of Judah. And David is also from the tribe of Judah. Othniel is the least of Caleb's brother's sons. David is the least of Jesse's sons. Othniel is a man filled with the Spirit to deliver Israel. David is also a man filled with the Spirit, so much so that he's called a man after God's own heart. So we start off Judges with a good leader. And he goes to war for Israel and he saves them. Look again with me at verse 10 of chapter 3. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. It's very clear that it is the Lord who is bringing about this deliverance. The Lord is the one who is fighting for Israel. We don't see Israel in this, chap- in this, uh, in this account of uh, deliverance lift a finger. We don't see them fight at, fighting at all. The Lord is the one who empowered Othniel to fight. So all glory must go to him in this section. And notice the fact that there are 40 years of peace. And this is another chance for Israel to be pure, to worship God in holiness. It's another chance for them to be his people. And the Lord provides this chance out of his mercy. Now, we here in the, in the 21st century, we certainly can pray for peace. We certainly can be praying for our leaders to be filled with the Spirit. And we can pray that our worship of the Almighty God would go unhindered, that we would not be oppressed, that we would not have obstacles put in our way to worship God, even here this morning. And it is actually commanded, and it is pleasing to the Lord that we do so. As in, uh, you can see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But then Othniel dies. Israel's judged, and they lived happily ever after, right? Wrong. Let's see next, a left-handed assassin. In Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. So please listen as I read again the words of our God. Starting in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Amorites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Eglon had finished presenting the tribute, Ehud, excuse me, when Ehud had for finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. 
And he who had came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and he who had said, I have a message from God for you, and he arose from his seat. And he who had reached within with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly, and the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down with him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. The land rested, had rest for 80 years. This ends the reading of God's Word for this section. Dale Raff Davis calls this section of Scripture an R-rated section. And he gives us some good, uh, he gives us some good encouragements. First of all, let's not try to allegorize this text. This is the Word of God. Let's not try to moralize this text. This is an inerrant word. That said, let's just notice verse 12. The people of Israel again do what is evil. And since we're not exactly told what it was, the context probably just tells us they went back to Baal worship, which is our context. And so the Lord, in His righteous anger, gives them over to the oppressors. And again, notice verse 12 that he's actually the one strengthening Eglon's hand. He's the one raising up this wicked king against his people. And in verse 13, he even brings other wicked nations. He brings the Amorites and the Amalekites against the people. These nations should have been trophies on Israel's wall. These nations should have been victories that were sung about in the households of Israel. But because they were unfaithful, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out warfare against them, these wicked nations are Israel's undoing. Instead of just eight years under Mesopotamia, under um, Kushan Rishathaim, there's now 18 years under Eglon. And you see the enemies are getting worse. The slavery is getting longer. And this is second abandonment by Israel. It's worse than the first. Israel should have known better. They should have known that the Lord is holy and cannot abide evil. But how many times have we presumed upon the mercy of the Lord? And how many times have we returned to former sins in our lives from which the Lord has drawn us time and time again? We see that Israel again cry out under their oppression. And they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord hears, and the Lord answers. And hey presto, we have our second judge, Ehud. A Benjaminite. Now he is not from the tribe of Judah, 
perhaps this is an indication to us that Judah is falling down on the job. Maybe they were faithful for a moment. But even if the people of God fail to obey, the Lord will accomplish His purposes even by some unexpected means. Now, as is mentioned earlier, he's a left-handed man, and this detail will come important later. But it's not an indictment against uh, left-handed people. It's just pointed out to us to show the unlikeliness of this, this man. We're told that he's chosen to be the one to carry tribute of the enslaved Israel to King Eglon. And as we see, the hand of the Lord, albeit through a left-handed instrument, comes into the very enemy stronghold, into the royal palace, and wreaks havoc. You see the Lord, Lord's man, uh, Ehud, make for himself a weapon of great cunning. and makes himself a dagger, a single-use weapon. He's not trying to take on all of the army or even the bodyguards. The weapon is a, uh, the tool of a clever man, a cunning man. And being a left-handed man, he would have strapped it under his right thigh. And this would have mean if the bodyguards were looking for right-handed men, right-handed assassins, they would have been looking for something on the left. So the Lord subverts uh, their preparations. Then Ehud presents the tribute to the king, and we are given this detail that he was a very fat man. More on that later. But then Ehud devises a way to get the king alone. He uses his wits, and as he's leaving and turning to go back to Israel with his tail between his legs, right? The enslaved people have just delivered their tribute. And returning like a scalded dog, he turns around. Amidst the idols, notice that, amidst the idols of this king, he says, I have a message for you. A message from the king, the true king of Israel. Now the king, being a fat man and probably quite a greedy man, thought he would invade Israel and exact tribute to feed his enormous ego. This man was probably assuming that Ehud had a blessing for him. He was probably sucking up to him. He was probably trying to bribe him, win special favors. Perhaps he was trying to, perhaps he thought Ehud would give him some special knowledge that would make him privy to more gain. So if Ehud had a bribe for the king, he would want uh, all of his servants to leave. And so he sends out all of his servants and allows this Israelite, who should be Eglon's servant, to come near. And he's probably expecting to receive more gifts, and so he rises. And then Ehud delivers his message, which in this case is a dagger, right to the thing that Eglon values most. If his God was his belly, then truly the Lord smashes his idols. And you can imagine for yourself with the appropriate details for a Sunday school, the things given there. Well, Ehud is a man aided by providence, and it makes a, he makes a brilliant escape. And he climbs out on the porch and escapes back to Israel to gather an army. Meanwhile, the Moabite servants are all in, tied up in knots. They don't want to go in in case the king is in a state of nature. Uh, but who knows, perhaps the king has fallen in. <clears throat> well, they enter in and <laughs> find their monarch dead. In the bathroom. Well, then we see Ehud make good on his mission to deliver Israel. He goes back and he sounds the trumpet of war. And he wastes no time in uniting Israel. Under the Lord's banner and arming them with the courage of the Lord. For the Lord has promised to be faithful to them. And 
Look at verse 28. He says to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given these enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So he went down after, they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. They killed at that time 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. You see, the enemies, the oppressors of Israel, were overcome with a, and dealt a death blow. Israel uh, should have already exterminated these people. But the Lord orchestrates this deliverance and does what Israel failed to do. And then there is peace. Look at verse 30. Israel now has peace for 80 years. Now, you might ask in your, in, in your, in your mind, why 80 years uh, when we had 40 years before? And is this not a downward spiral? Well, I would commend to your consideration the fact that all of Israel is now obeying. Rather than just one man, just Othniel delivering Israel, all of Israel is now united in coming against uh, these wicked people, against their oppressors. And so for this actual obedience, the Lord grants greater blessing and greater peace. <clears throat> Let me make one comment now on the grotesqueness of this passage. This scene actually would have been quite popular to the Israelites. And there would have been a, even a comedic way uh, this story would have been told. Uh, from the details of Eglon's obesity to the stupidity of his servants, there are so many laughable details that the Lord makes an entire nation look bad by the hand of one left-handed assassin. And Israel would not have been the least bit embarrassed about this. They would have rather enjoyed it. To give you a rather modern-day example of what, uh, of what Eglon would have been to the Israelites, he would have been like, if I, for, for you Georgians, if I said the name William Tecumseh Sherman, you would have not been at all sorry to hear of his death, maybe even a humorous death, because he wreaked devastation. Well, you can only imagine how much more 18 years of pent-up Hatred would have been in the Israelites. That this man would have been devastating their land and keeping their children hungry and on the run. Well, Israel would have no doubt loved this story on a human level. The big and the bad Eglon is now brought low. He is humbled. He's not so big and bad now. He's just a puddle on the floor. And let's look back at, at this story as uh, something which means a bit more for us. Something more than just a geopolitical triumph of an oppressed nation over uh, their oppressors. What I would like to encourage us this morning is that we see that we serve a God who is not above the gory details of this present evil age. He is a God who is sovereign even over the messy things in his life. Notice that the Lord is not above even using potty humor to humiliate his enemies. And let's not think for a second that we, uh, that as we saw the Lord raise up Eglon, even if we saw the Lord strengthen his hand, that Eglon would not have chosen and did not choose in and of himself to attack the Lord's people. Eglon is a wicked and a greedy ruler. But as we know from Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it where he wills or where he pleases. The Lord turns the heart of kings, even wicked kings, 
And He can accomplish and will accomplish sovereign decrees. So let's take encouragement from this this morning, uh, that our God is a God of history. He directs the course and the flow of time. What the pagans and the modern hippies call fate, we call the loving hand of our God, the Almighty Lord of hosts. But we have to acknowledge that Ehud, excuse me, Ehud is not an adequate Savior. Look at Judges 4.1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud. Israel has learned nothing from their Moabite oppressors, and they returned to their vomit like a dog. We have just one more judge to consider before ending our time this morning. And it is a judge who is used by the Lord for His redemptive purposes, so we will consider Him nonetheless, even though we're only given one verse for Him. So look with me finally at Judges chapter 3, verse 31. This is the words of God. After him, that is Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. <clears throat> now, Shamgar is hardly a household name, and certainly not one to name your children. But his name is recorded as judging the people, as being used as an instrument of the Lord for salvation. And we believe that the Bible is infallible and inerrant and without inaccuracy. We believe that even the gory and the obscure details are true because they are of the Lord. But what do we know about Shamgar? Well, we actually don't know a whole lot. We know that he came after Ehud. We know that he was the son of this guy, Anath, which we don't know anything about him. We know that he killed 600 Philistines. We know he killed them with an ox goad. And we know that he also saved Israel. That's it. But for the book of Judges, that's actually quite a lot. Um, quite a lot. We see that Israel probably was doing again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord probably oppressed them with the Philistines because they are the oppressors of Israel. And we'll see them come up again in the book of Judges. And we know that the Lord has raised up this man, Shamgar. And he delivers Israel uh, through working uh, a work that could only have been done through the Holy Spirit. 600 men with what is basically a sharp stick. But in terms of the actual history, there's not a lot of detail. And perhaps less is more in these cases. You'll notice that our... Our righteous judge, our paradigmatic judge, Othniel, was only a few verses. But as we go on through the book of Judges, we'll notice the stories come longer and longer. Sin twists history, and the story becomes more complex and mired more, with more and more details. So perhaps the less details here uh, is a commendation of Shamgar. But one thing we can, can say about Shamgar is he probably was not an Israelite. He probably was a Canaanite, just from his name. It sounds more like a Canaanite name or a Huronian or Hurrian name. And you know, you know how you can tell if a kid is homeschooled if he has a name like Hezekiah, right? You, you can kind of tell that who, who this family comes from, where they come from, by their names. Well, the same with uh, Shamgar. But let's just notice that his weapon... This is a man who is truly gifted by the Lord because he kills 600 men with an ox goat. And this would have been just this long stick with a paddle on one end and a sharp prod on the other. Right? This is an obscure weapon. 
And killing 600 men would certainly put him into the list of David's mighty men. And he sounds like a Samson character in his strength. But we're not told whether or not Shamgar was a man of God. We're not told if he was a faithful man, if he believed in the Lord uh, of Israel. And so we need to be careful we don't go beyond what the Bible says. We don't add to Scripture, which is a sin. But one thing we cannot miss this morning, and that is the point, and we'll close with this. The point of including this divinely orchestrated salvation is that it was a work of the Lord. And so as we end our lesson this morning, we prepare ourselves for worship. Let's ask ourselves, do we know this God of history? Do we serve this almighty sovereign? Do we know that God can strengthen the hands of our enemies, even to bring us back to himself? Do we believe that God can raise up all kinds, all shapes of leaders to lead his people in the spirit which honors Christ? Do we believe that God is our Lord, even in the grotesque details of even our lives? And do we now enter into his presence with the appropriate level of humility and honor? Well, if, are there any questions? Yes, I think that's absolutely. So, yeah, when Ehud turns back within the idols, within this gallery, so you can imagine a gallery of idols, right? Like idol upon idol. There's an idol for uh, fertility. There's an idol for your crops. There's an idol for the river. Idols after idols, all this paganism. And from within that, this obscure guy, this left-handed guy turns around who's supposed to be cowering before before Eglon. He turns around and he says, I have a message from the true God for you. And it, of course, is his undoing. I, think it's, I just think it's a rather telling detail that Eglon's demise comes from within the idols. It's just an interesting de- geographical detail. Yes, sir. <laughs> I said the Lord can use potty humor in appropriate ways. <laughs> the Lord stoops to our level, we'll say that. <laughs> uh, saying nothing else, let's close in a time of prayer. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your eminence, for your sovereign power over all of our lives. We know that if you can turn the heart of kings in your hands, Uh, even as you direct the waters to the sea. We know that surely you can turn our hearts to you even this morning. And so we ask that even after hearing accounts of deliverance uh, of judges, uh, of the people of Israel, of of your people, we pray now that you would deliver us uh, from this week, from the cares of this world. We pray that you would turn our hearts to you, that we would enter into covenant worship with you, now this morning, with your gathered people, and that your name would be praised, that you would receive all of the glory. And Father, we ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.